Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. All right, three, two, one, let's go. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. My guest today is Casey Haman, founder of AQIS LLC. Casey is a Warren Buffett disciple and spent his first decade in the industry working as an analyst at discretionary deep value long short hedge funds, which probably makes him sound like an odd guest for a podcast all about quantitative investing. Casey's experiences, however, led him to identify a number of biases that he believes pollute the stock picking skills of discretionary analysts. In thinking of a hedge fund as a system whose first goal is survival, he believes that these biases are durable. For KC, 13F filings are prospect theory in action. By modeling both the universal and idiosyncratic biases of a manager, KC seeks to better identify cases of true conviction which often do not correspond to position size. And it is in these high conviction ideas that Casey believes are the best opportunities to generate excess returns. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Casey Haman. Casey, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So longtime listeners of my podcast will know I like to often start at the beginning because my perspective is that an investor's formative years are really important for shaping ultimately how they view the markets. When we started talking, I know you are a systematic quant investor today, but actually got your start on the fundamental side of things, a discretionary long short equity management. I was hoping you could take us back to the beginning, maybe talk about some of the funds that you used to work at and what day-to-day life was like as an analyst at a discretionary long short equity fund. Yeah, happy to. So as you said, I'm a systematic Long short equity manager today. I manage a fund called AQIS and we launched in April of 2017. But my entire background is really in discretionary equity long short investing. I wasn't trained as a systematic quant investor. So I came at this with probably a much different path than most of the quants out there. But I also view that as, in some ways, part of our edge in that the approach we take today is trying to systematize discretionary insight and access stock picking skill in a way that accesses it in a more pure fashion. So we try to remove the behavioral bias that I observed over a career of discretionary equity long short investing 
that tended to pollute return generation and alpha capture inside ELS funds. So it's interesting where I am today, but it's all because of where I started, which was more of a classic value-oriented equity long short approach to compounding capital. And so I think that's somewhat unique in that I spent about a decade inside that world. And I think for perspective for your listeners, I mean, the hedge fund universe has about $3 trillion in assets. And equity long short is 20 to 25% of all that AUM. It's arguably probably the most popular strategy out there. I think it's what people think of when they think of hedge fund investing. These are stock pickers in the long and short side. The way I was brought up was to approach ELS investing with a value mindset, which is somewhat unique in that on the long side, we were really participating in what I would call time arbitrage. So it's a lot of valuation work and you're trying to understand what a company's worth and estimate its intrinsic value. It's always a range. It's never the company is worth X. Price targets are, are kind of foolish. What you're trying to do is build a basically a probability curve of what you think the expected value is of publicly traded equity. And then you compare that to price. And that's what you do on the long side. On the short side, you're trying to identify alpha shorts. But for the most part, I think shorting is extremely difficult. Most of your P&L comes from long investing. So I think a lot of investors try to be thoughtful on the short side, but using shorts for hedging purposes. But my background in ELS, why don't I go way back? And I'll tell you that my introduction to the whole space started with, I was very lucky to have a tremendous group of mentors. And I'd say my first mentor was a fellow named Vic Cunningham. And when I was in college, I interned for a fund he ran. They were a long-only shop. And Vic was a classic value investor. And that was my first real exposure to what goes on in an office where all you're thinking about all day is how to value companies and compound capital and reduce and limit drawdowns. And Vic gave me an enormous reading list. And I was a college student. And there were a number of books in the list, but one of the pieces that resonated me most were the Buffett partnership letters. So he recommended that I read all the Berkshire Hathaway letters, that I read the Buffett partnership letters. So for folks who may be unaware, that was essentially Buffett's hedge fund vehicle prior to acquiring Berkshire Hathaway and building out the conglomerate that he runs today. That had a huge impact on me because Buffett is obviously extremely successful, but the concept of what he does is very simple. It's elegant in its simplicity. He preaches that there's something called intrinsic value. A company has a value. And then every day there's the price. And the game you're playing is just, it's a constant comparison of price and value. And if you can find a stock that is priced well below what you estimate its intrinsic value to be, you have healthy margin of safety. You might buy it and it would become a long position. If the price is well above intrinsic value, Maybe you'd short it and try to capture the premium that way. So the whole process to me was very intellectually appealing. And what jumped out to me was that it required extreme intellectual honesty. And you couldn't fool yourself. You had to understand that the future is unknowable. That restricted your universe of stocks that you could value and analyze because not every stock is easy to forecast. It's not easy to forecast the earnings of every publicly traded company. So what it ends up happening is that you basically avoid story stocks. You, I don't know a lot of value investors who look at biotechnology stocks or who look at speculative pharma companies or who are trying to value energy, the like E&Ps. They're difficult to value. You might not even invest. You might stay away from like regional casinos because if a casino opens up next to another casino, there's share losses and their earnings collapse. So 
it limits you to this slice of the universe where you know, some people call a circle of competence, but where you're trying to find good businesses run by good management teams where you can understand what they're likely to earn and come up with a reasonable estimate of their intrinsic value. And then you compare that to price. And so the whole process to me, it made a lot of sense. What I learned over time is value investing in some ways is masochistic. You are essentially a hermit and it's not very fun to go to a party or a bar and people ask you, well, what do you think of Snapchat or what do you think of Facebook? And they know you're a professional investor and you say, well, actually, I don't really have an opinion on that. And I think people don't understand that. So you end up feeling a little bit foolish. But in reality, what you're trying to do is maximize the odds that your valuation work is correct, because that allows you, that increases the odds that you'll be investing with an appropriate margin of safety and capturing the gap between price and intrinsic value. So I interned for Vic and just loved this industry. And I was fortunate enough to land a job on the buy side right after college. I was writing up a lot of investment research. I took the level one CFA exam when I was still in college. I was not that interested in going down an investment banking path. And I was fascinated by equity, public equity market investing. And so I was lucky enough to land a gig right after school. And my day-to-day was... I absolutely loved it because if you're a curious person, you basically sit in a room all day and you get to spend your time reading, writing, thinking, and debating with your team about the merits of different investments. And you're essentially married to skepticism and you have to have a ruthless intolerance for any analysis that lacks support and empirical evidence. And to me, it was the ultimate meritocracy that our investors were paying us fees to compound capital and we shared in the profits through carried interest. It should be that our incentives are aligned. And what I learned over time is that my impression of that alignment was extremely naive. And so today I'm a systematic investor because I learned, I think it's highly likely stock picking skill exists. But I saw firsthand, not really directly in the funds I worked for, I think they were run by fantastic people, but in meeting a lot of people in the hedge fund universe, that the product of that stock picking skill is polluted by behavioral biases. And it seemed possible to me about a decade ago that you could maybe access the skill without incurring the drag from suboptimal behavior. So now I'm a quant. But I'm a quant because of my background in understanding equity long short, developing this opinion that stock picking skill exists and that maybe there's just a better way to access it. You mentioned some of those behavioral biases that you saw, the alignment that you thought was there between the managers and the LPs maybe wasn't as pure as you thought it was when you initially started. Were there any real defining moments in your experience? that come to mind, any particular memories that you can tell us about where that really shown clear for you? Yeah. And really, it goes back to, I mean, the defining moments were a series of events over my career because I was fortunate enough to have a few fantastic mentors. And I think I was extremely lucky in that regard because I don't know that every person that comes into the hedge fund world has the opportunity to study and learn about investing under the caliber of people that I was fortunate enough to learn from. So I think the defining moments were seeing how it should be done. And then as I participated in industry events, built up a network in the hedge fund community, there was overwhelming evidence that the way it should be done wasn't the way it was done on average. So I mentioned Vic, for example. So Vic Cunningham today, he's a portfolio manager at Third Avenue. 
And Third Avenue is a classic value shop. It was started by this guy, Marty Whitman. And Vic taught me that Vic was always looking for cash flow, trying to understand the balance sheets. He was a classic value guy. And he was, most of all, just extremely disciplined. And that taught me a lot. And so that was with an internship I had with, with Vic. But after college, I joined a firm called Post Road Capital. And I worked for a fellow named David Eigen. David was also a classic value guy. So we were doing equity long short investing, but he was incredibly disciplined. He taught me the merit of doing deep due diligence on companies, really understanding what they do, how they make money. We spent a lot of time on calls with management teams, evaluating the leaders of these businesses. That also taught me a lot. I think he was a did a phenomenal job of managing risk in his portfolio and trying to identify significant gaps between price and value on the long and short side. But the majority of my experience and the fellow I spent the most time with was a guy named Andy Jones. And so after Post Road, I joined a firm called North Star Partners. North Star was an equity long short fund. We primarily trafficked in smaller capitalization companies, and we were very much value-oriented. Andy was all the above with Vic and David, but he had launched his fund in 1996. His track record was phenomenal when I joined him. When I left in April 2017 to launch Aquis, he had crushed the S&P. He's retired now. North Star's closed. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say what his performance was, but it was clear to me Andy was extremely talented and very brilliant and very good at what he did. And that taught me a lot. And I think it highlighted to me that maybe Andy came that way because he was just naturally a value investor, but he had also had a career path that stemmed from the value investing tree, as some people call it. So Ben Graham was arguably considered the father of value investing. And his two most famous students are Walter Schloss and Warren Buffett. And off of that tree, there's been a number of firms that have launched. One of them was just Tweedy Brown. So Andy spent a career at Tweedy Brown prior to launching Northstar. And prior to Tweedy, he worked for a guy named Seth Blickenhouse. And Seth, less well-known, I think, in the value world, but he was famous for a comment that you should buy when other investors are pissing blood. So it's basically a more colorful comment than Warren Buffett's, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. But that was Andy's background. And I think the lessons I learned from Andy was that he was so focused on downside risk that don't lose money was basically rule number one. It's not like these were written anywhere, but just observing him behave, don't lose money seemed to be rule number one. And rule number two was never forget rule number one. So he had this relentless focus on margin of safety. He had a ruthless intolerance for speculation or analysis that wasn't based on empirical data. And I really believe he was almost a born super forecaster. There are these like 10 commandments of super forecasting that Phil Tetlock has talked about. and. In some ways, I think I was exposed to those at Northstar working for Andy, thinking about base rates. What are the odds that this is a good investment? And really trying to think critically about margin of safety and constantly trying to compound your capital. And Andy was one of the largest, I think, well, he was a meaningful investor in Northstar. So overseeing his own money, he behaved in what I would call a super rational manner. He was incredibly logical. And when I would pitch him ideas, he would identify holes in them. By the end of the conversation, I would find myself agreeing with him and that I had made assumptions that were potentially unfair. 
So I say all that to get back to the question of defining moments. I was so fortunate to be trained by these people who are so incredibly disciplined that once I started attending idea dinners, so on Wall Street, people will get together, they talk about stocks, they share ideas. And I started attending conferences. I started meeting a lot of other people in the hedge fund world, especially in equity long short, and interacting with other analysts and portfolio managers. And what became readily apparent was that Andy was, I think, a different breed. What we were doing at Northstar was not the same approach that other people were taking. We were essentially participating in a version of time arbitrage. We were forecasting the value of the company multiple years forward, trying to find 15% compounders, where our peers, they were engaged in more myopic decision-making about portfolio construction and risk management, playing earnings games. And we didn't I suppose you can do a good job of that on occasion, but whether or not you have durable skill in trading around earnings in a specific stock, there's not a lot of evidence for that. What was really the defining moment was that learning that was really disheartening to me because when you look at the overall industry, you know, I thought we were taking a very pure approach and I'm sure there were things we did that were suboptimal and by no means am I saying that I think we were the best hedge fund in the world or anything, but our steward was somebody who behaved in this super logical way. And it was disheartening to me to see that the rest of the industry, in my opinion, was actually wildly mismanaged. And when I would speak to my peers, I would learn that portfolio construction decisions at some funds, managers may put positions in the portfolio based on how much they like an analyst. If you are more likable, if you're more persuasive, you may get more names in the portfolio. They may be larger size. So it's actually not a meritocracy. I also saw that managers tended to behave differently based on what time of year it was. And they would behave differently whether they were up in the second half versus down in the second half. And so I came to this industry thinking it was like the ultimate intellectual game and it was a meritocracy and the incentives are aligned and I get to learn all day about different companies. And it was incredibly naive. And I think the reality is the hedge fund industry is plagued by behavioral biases, misaligned incentives, and it leads managers to suboptimally harvest their stock picking skill. And what I found really interesting about a lot of our early conversations that we had together was that your critique against hedge funds was not the usual performance critique that you see in headlines, which we all know are just a poor understanding of what hedge funds are supposed to do, nor was it a critique against skill. There's so many papers out there about whether active managers truly have stock selection skill. Your view seems to be that there is indeed skill, but it's ultimately polluted by this alignment issue. And really, as far as alignment goes, when, when we talk, you really seem to identify three core problems. You mentioned one there about managers maybe having favorite analysts that they might overpromote in a position sizing perspective. You talked a little bit about taking the second half of the year off. I was hoping you could walk us through those three core behavioral slash alignment problems that you've really identified and what they are and where they arise from. Sure. So I think there are a lot of issues, first of all, and I'm having to touch on three of them. Well, go as many as you want. <laughs> yeah, that would be a podcast that lasted all day. But I think the three that are fairly obvious to me are that position sizing on average, I think managers, position sizing is suboptimal. And we can kind of get into why that's the case. But effort certainly seems highly likely to me that there's seasonal effort in the industry. Managers that are up in the first half, and I think anecdotally, you see that they tend to de-risk in the second half. There's also academic literature that shows that. 
And managers also have fairly durable style biases. They allocate to the best risk reward stocks. I think they try to, but it's not within a global framework. It's within the factor tilts that they are comfortable with and tend to intend to exhibit. And those three things I observed myself, but there's also ample academic research to support them. But I think taking a step back before even diving into those, I think it's important to consider a framework for why these things may exist and whether they're durable. Like, is this just a feature of hedge fund behavior that I've observed the last five years, 10 years, or is this something that you would expect? based on the hedge fund as a system. And when I was working at Northstar for Andy, seeing these things and seeing these problems, and I had this great means of comparison and that Northstar, I think among most funds did not, was not as susceptible to these issues, but they seemed to really be problems at other funds, at least some of the other funds that I encountered. I thought a lot about that. And I ended up doing a lot of, I would call it research. I'm trying to think critically about the industry. An area that I found was actually most informative and helped me think about these problems was reading about systems dynamics. And there's this tremendous book. It's called Thinking in Systems. It was written by this woman named Danella Meadows. She taught at MIT and she taught at Dartmouth. But systems dynamics teaches you, and she talks a lot about this in her book, that an important part of every system is to ensure its own perpetuation. And if you consider that almost the goal of the system, that's its purpose, it's a crucial determinant of how the system's gonna behave. So let's say you take the hedge fund model and you consider it a system and you really simplify it. You say there's two components, right? So there's the general partner, the founder or owner of the firm, and then there are the employees that work there, the PMs and the analysts. And another thing I should clarify, Corey, is that everything I think we're talking about today, I wanna to be clear, is as it relates to equity long short, discretionary equity long short. I'm not sure that these are this is a great way to think about some other hedge funds. I would imagine it could apply, but what I'm referencing is discretionary equity long short. But if you take that type of model, that a hedge fund is a system, there are these two actors in it, the owner, the GP, and then the employees, the analysts and PMs, you would think that both groups have the same shared goals. And self-perpetuation, I think for us, is self-preservation and wealth maximization. So all the players inside a hedge fund, those are what I think, I believe strongly are shared goals. The difference is how they pursue those goals and they pursue them very differently. If you're the GP of a fund, your bias, in my opinion, is to be more risk averse than risk seeking. There's an asymmetric benefit to AUM growth if you're sitting on top of a hedge fund than if you're an analyst or portfolio manager. If you're an analyst or portfolio manager, if a fund goes from 500 million in assets to a billion, your salary might go up if you're an analyst or PM. It doesn't double. Management fee does. If it goes to one to two billion, your salary might go up. But again, you're not making twice as much money. The founder is. So I think that creates a bias for the founder of most hedge funds to want to maintain AUM and grow AUM. And that means they don't want to take too much risk. So that creates this bias imbalance being risk averse or risk seeking. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the analysts and PMs. If their goal is to self-preserve and maximize their wealth, their bias is going to be toward taking risk. They're going to be more risk-seeking than risk-averse because that's what's going to drive their compensation. That's going to drive their bonus. What I've learned over time is that if you study 13F behavior, if you score it appropriately and you analyze it appropriately, it's like an EKG. It's like a beautiful mechanism 
that moves between risk on and risk off behavior. And I think it suggests that there's a narrative taking place. But that system, I think, creates these problems. And so suboptimal position sizing, for example, it is easier to make names that are easier to defend larger positions. Often one of the first questions I think managers will receive from an allocator is walk me through your top three or five ideas. It is difficult to put names that are controversial on the top of your book. So I think that leads to crowdedness. It promotes crowdedness. But it's my opinion that I think the top of manager's book could be considered marketing ballast. And that goes back to thinking of a hedge fund as a system. Of course, the manager wants to make it so they can easily grow assets. They don't want to put a lot of controversial names in the top of the book, even if those names have superior risk-reward asymmetry to bang or whatever it is, the names that are more easily to defend. In terms of seasonal effort, I think that is also explained by thinking about the hedge fund as a system, that if a fund is up in the first half, you would expect that they would likely de-risk in the second half because they're already counting their bonus. So I think that makes sense. It's terrible. LPs are paying the exact same marketing or management fee in the first half of the year as they are in the second half year and receiving less effort. But I think that does explain that phenomenon. And then I think it also supports style bias. So I've touched on these from a high level. If you'd like, we can go into some of the observations we have in the actual academic literature that support each of those pieces. But I do think it's important to say not that these things exist. I think you need to first take a step back and say, well, why should they exist? Why would we expect this to be the case? And I think if you think of hedge funds as a system within that framework that I presented, that those are the reasons and it makes sense that these things would exist, but happy to go into more detail. You know, I'd love to ask a question about the style bias in particular. As you were talking, one of the things that came to mind for me was first, I don't want to call it a contradiction, but the acknowledgement of a point you made earlier in the conversation about staying within your circle of competence as being a potentially positive thing. But the other thing that the style bias made me think of was not only is it perhaps the manager's incentive to have that bias and stay within their circle of competence, but also potentially one that is externally pushed upon them by institutional allocators who are looking to fill a particular niche within their portfolio. They're looking for a deep value manager or they're looking for a quality growth manager, whatever it may be. I wanted to get your perspective on that. How much of that is internal to the system? How much of it maybe is external pressure outside the system? So I think it's a fantastic point. And it's a really good question. It is in the allocator's interest. Allocators have boxes to check. And one of those boxes is equity long short. And within equity long short, I'm certain that they are aware that some managers may have a momentum bias, some are more value oriented. And so if they want, I don't want to call it smart beta exposure, but active management within a factor tilt, yes, it serves them well to allocate the hedge fund managers who have a certain bounded exposure to a factor, but are selling them skill within that factor. So it's all rational. It's reasonable that you would expect managers to not deviate too far from their mandate. Style drift and strategy drift is an easy way to get fired. If you show a track record off of value investing, and then all of a sudden you're buying like growth stocks, that's an easy way to lose your capital. So I don't disagree that it is logical that the managers behave that way and that allocators look to check those boxes. The problem is, or some allocators are looking, they expect to allocate to these folks and have a durable return stream. If you have bounded factor exposure, 
it's very hard to produce a return stream that isn't married or correlated meaningfully with the performance of that factor over time. And I saw this firsthand within Northstar. I mean, we were value investors. It was really difficult the years leading up to my departure. And, and I think value investors more broadly have had a really difficult time managing money. If you want to produce a return stream that is more constant, you have to be willing to have more dynamic factor exposures. I think it's highly unlikely you're going to get that from allocating to a single equity long short manager or a small group of equity long short managers. So our solution at Aquis, the way I've thought about this is that, well, instead of buying the entire portfolio of a manager, what if you use conviction as your compass to identify names to invest in, but you look across the whole universe? And so you aggregate conviction into a portfolio. And for each manager who has their own bias, they may have conviction in their factor tilt. But when you marry that with conviction in another factor tilt from another manager, you diversify your exposure. And the common theme is conviction. I hopefully positions with favorable risk reward asymmetry, but potentially in different factor exposures. But most managers, in my opinion, and there's academic research to support this, they essentially provide you with bounded factor exposure and you pay two and 20 for it. There was a paper written called Financial Product Differentiation over the state space of the mutual fund industry, where the researchers ran a Carhartt model on diversified portfolios, basically mutual funds, and found that Carhartt, a four-factor model, explained 96% of their performance. It's not clear to me that managers understand what types of risks they're taking. Factor attribution analysis is still relatively new. It's not clear to me allocators do enough of a thorough job understanding what types of factor tilts their managers are taking. I think the better ones do. But it does seem to be likely that the reality is most managers just provide you with bounded factor exposure and then try to provide you with skill within that factor. And so at the end of the day, you end up buying this really basically expensive smart beta product. And so our position is that you can assemble a better product by aggregating the wisdom of these managers using conviction as your compass, as opposed to trying to pick the next best equity long short investor. The evidence would suggest is it's extremely, extremely difficult. How do you reconcile the idea that what it sounds like is you've got a fundamentally flawed delivery vehicle that results in suboptimal performance? I guess my question would be, how do you reconcile that? Well, maybe there's just a lack of skill. Your belief seems to be that there actually is security selection skill that's just being polluted and diluted. But how do you actually identify whether that skill exists? Or how do you know, perhaps maybe it's not all these biases, it's actually that these managers don't have skill in selection? Well, I think without getting into, you know, I can't talk about, for example, our performance, but there's lots of academic research that does support the fact that there is stock picking skill. And there's evidence to suggest that that skill is just polluted by the way managers construct their portfolios and manage risk. So maybe we could go back to touching on the two things we talked about earlier, which is position sizing and seasonal effort. If we start with position sizing, for example, so it's my opinion that I think position sizing is polluted by marketing efforts, that the top of a portfolio tends to be populated more with what I would call ballast names that don't have as much downside, and that there are these cultural problems that lead to suboptimal positioning sizing. So analyst popularity, whether they're very persuasive, the mood of the PM that day. I'm actually reading a book right now by Daniel Coyle called The Culture Code, 
And one of the things he finds in his research is that the most successful organizations have designed environments that are essentially safe places. So people are free to share ideas without being criticized, risk losing their jobs. Hedge funds, generally speaking, are not safe places. I think for the most part, they're very combative. If you defend a bad idea too many times, you could be out of a job. So there are a lot of problems that show the position sizing is likely suboptimal. And one of the things we did is we looked at over, I think, 13 years of data. And we said, what happens if you take a one over N approach to reconstructing managers' portfolios? So you equal weight all their names. What we found is that it was basically a coin flip, whether the manager beat the one over N portfolio. So that is revealing in that Obviously, their efforts to size their book on average are are not rewarding their LPs, but that doesn't mean they don't have skill. There's a fantastic paper written by this brilliant guy, Cameron Height, at a firm called Alpha Theory, and they sell tools to funds to help them size their positions, basically ensuring that the idea quality, the quality of an idea correlates highly to the position size. And what he found was that, look, if you look at the top names in a manager's portfolio, they actually outperform the rest of the book. So they must have some skill. And I'm not saying that the top, there's an important distinction here. The top of a manager's portfolio, I believe are polluted by some of these problems. But Cameron's research shows that those top names actually beat the rest of the book. What we find is that if you construct sub-portfolios out of a total portfolio, Cameron's approach was to construct a sub-portfolio just from, by ranking names in terms of size that you can beat the book. We find that if you use conviction as your compass, the sub-portfolio that you can construct is far superior to the rest of the book and actually superior just to the top of the book. And we have seen that our approach is statistically significant. It is effective going back over a decade. So there are ways to extract alpha from the total portfolio. But for the average LP or allocator investing into a fund, they're also getting the suboptimal pieces. They're buying part of that behavioral bias, which is really problematic. And so I think one way to think about this is that if you try to think of a simple model to explain returns, you could say that, well, the returns a fund generates are equal to the skill of the manager plus their beta exposure minus some behavioral drag. Let's say that that's your simple model. If you take the beta exposure, let's subtract that from the return. So then you're left with alpha. So alpha equals their skill minus some behavioral drag. What Cameron's research shows is that you could arguably reduce that behavioral drag by just buying the top of the book and you'll have better returns. Our research says the same thing, basically. We just go about it in a little bit of a different way and we find the sub portfolios that we create, they appear to reduce that behavioral drag component by even more. So your alpha is larger, but it's addition through subtraction. We're not saying that we are improving the skill of these managers. The skill seems to be latent. What happens is that if you can figure out a mechanism to reduce the behavioral drag, you can amplify your exposure to the skill and therefore have a higher return. I think seasonal effort is it's just another example of this. So I co-authored an article for Absolute Return with a fellow named Prague Pandey, who used to be the CIO of a firm called Senfina. And our thesis was that, as I touched on earlier, that the funds mismanage their stock picking skill and they mismanage it over a calendar year basis. And I had seen anecdotally that this was the case by just talking to other investors. If I pitched a friend of mine an idea in May when I was back at Northstar and that 
name seemed to have, maybe it had certain type of risk reward asymmetry. My buddy might say, well, that's really interesting. I'm going to look at that. If I pitched a different name, but had equivalent statistical appeal from a risk reward asymmetry perspective, and I pitched it in September or October, and their fund was up on the year, the response I would get would be more along the lines of, oh, it seems interesting. You know, we've had a really good year. I'll put this on the to-do list. Hopefully it doesn't move and I'll revisit it in January. That is a huge problem. So that's behavioral bias impacting the returns they could deliver their LPs. And so Parag and I, we looked at the data and we said, well, let's just say you look at the average days of volume it takes for a manager to get into a name, a new long position. And let's just use 13F data. And we found that from the first half of the year to the second half of the year since 2008, nearly every single year except one, managers took fewer days of volume in the second half than they did the first half by about 17%. We're basically equating liquidity risk to the willingness, how badly they want to own an idea. But what we found is that in every year since 2008, they take less liquidity risk in the second half than they do in the first half. So they're less aggressively buying and accumulating new long ideas in the second half of the year than the first idea. So you could say, okay, well, what could explain that? Is there more volatility in the first half of the year versus the second half? So maybe there's just more opportunities to identify discrepancies between price and value in the first half of the year versus the second half. And it turns out, if you look at the data since 1928, Winton has looked at this data, and we present this data in the article, which is the copy of which is on my LinkedIn, if you want to look at it. It, volatility is, it moves around a little bit, but the movements are not statistically significant. It's essentially the same every single month. So that doesn't explain it. Now, there are, could be other phenomenon that explain this, that maybe as investors reallocate to hedge funds at the beginning of the year, hedge funds have more capital to put to work. There are other things that could explain this. And there are stories you can tell yourself, but when you really actually start to dive into the data, they don't explain this type of phenomenon. And we're not the only ones who have done this. There are a couple of researchers, Andrew Clare and Nick Motson. They wrote a paper in 2008 called Locking in the Profits or Putting it All in Black. And it was essentially an empirical investigation into the risk-seeking behavior of hedge fund managers. And they took a different approach. They looked at the standard deviation of the stocks managers were buying, but they basically found the exact same thing that managers tend to de-risk in the second half of the year versus the first half. This phenomenon is not only unique to first half, second half. There's an academic named Richard Seas, and in 2007, he wrote a paper called Causes and Seasonality of Momentum Profits. And what he showed is that the traditional 12 minus 1 momentum strategy, on average, delivers about 59 basis points of return in non-quarter-ending months. In quarter-ending months, it delivers 310 basis points. And even more, it's strongest in December among stocks that are most widely owned by institutions. So if you think about that, that's evidence of window dressing, of allocating to winners before you have to show your book to the street. And so the question of, well, what evidence is there to suggest there's skill? There's a lot of evidence to suggest there's skill. But if you invert that and say, well, what evidence is there to suggest that managers, if they do have skill, mismanage it? So what we're seeing in terms of the results are it's not fair to equate that to a measure of their skill. And what you end up seeing when you look at all these things is that, wow, there are all these issues. There's seasonal effort. Position sizing looks suboptimal. Style bias is problematic. 
managers, I think the most popular quote in every hedge fund letter is the Gretzky quote about we're skating to where the puck is going to be. In reality, they're skating where the puck is going to be only if it's in their part of the ice within their style factor, because that's basically how they invest. So if you're an allocator, you may find the best value ideas from a value manager, the best momentum ideas if you're allocating a momentum manager, or the best Garpy ideas if they're growth at a reasonable price, whatever it may be. But you're still going to be somewhat wedded to that factor tilt. And we know that the rest of their portfolio is polluted by these other issues. So perhaps a superior way of allocating capital is to identify firms that are really systematizing the discretionary process and investing more appropriately based on conviction. And so the best ideas are getting the most amount of capital that if you do that across cross-sectionally, you could assemble a portfolio where you have diversified factor tilts and a more pure expression of stock picking skill without this behavioral drag component that tends to pollute returns. It's my opinion, if you do that, you are going to end up having a more durable return stream. But the core belief is that stock picking skill exists. It's just polluted by these behavioral issues. But the engine of alpha capture are insights of these discretionary investors. So I want to take the conversation a little bit from the theoretical and bring it into the practical. And before we dive into precisely how you thought about building your firm and trying to incorporate these biases into how you might sort of adopt the wisdom from the crowds, let's assume I'm a listener right now and I work at a hedge fund. I work at a discretionary long short equity fund, which I don't know how many discretionary managers are listening to my quant podcast, but let's just assume we're that listener. (laughs) What would your advice be to them to help them try to control and avoid for these biases? How, how would you think about fixing it from the inside? So first of all, it's a great question. And I think what hedge funds need to do is, I think, be aware of, first, you have to be aware, admit to yourself, accept reality for what it is, that we are biased pattern-seeking monkeys, and we're going to behave in an imperfect manner when doing something as complex as constructing diversified equity portfolios and managing risk in those portfolios. So it starts with being honest with yourself and having intellectual honesty. And that's really hard. But I think that's step one. Once you do that, if you accept that's the case, then you need to identify ways to be more process-oriented in your decision-making. You need to figure out mechanisms to ensure or at least promote the odds that you will be allocating capital based on the merits of an idea and it's the risk reward asymmetry from a quantitative perspective, as opposed to, well, you really like having a beer after work with Sally or Frank. And so that may lead you to allocate more to their names or it's October and you're going to make a big bonus this year and you'd really like to buy a new car. You need to understand that those things exist and then think about ways to introduce process-oriented decision-making frameworks to enhance your odds of success. And I think one of the ways to think about this is you don't have to build these processes yourself. There are tools, readily available tools that funds could use to make themselves better. For example, I mentioned earlier Cameron Haidt, who wrote this paper, The Concentration Manifesto. His firm is designed to help managers think critically about their portfolio. They provide a number of inputs about each stock that they are long or short, and their tool helps you suggest a position size based on those inputs. It's basically expected value math. 
And that ensures that the names that are of the highest quality get the most amount of capital. What his research shows is that managers that use his tool, they outperform. The closer your actual position size is to their optimal position size that they recommend, you make more money on average. The fact that Cameron doesn't have every ELS fund signed up as a customer. There's a friend of mine, this guy named Dana Lambert. He wrote a article uh, a couple of years ago how investment technology is, and tools should be part of an allocator's operational due diligence process because that there are all these tools out there. And frankly, if you're a fund manager and you're not using alpha theory, in my mind, you should have a very good explanation for why you're not using that tool. Or you should be prepared to show how you think systematically about position sizing within your own book. So that's position sizing. But I think another significant problem is understanding the risk you are taking as a manager. And that relates to factor exposure. So when we talk about style bias, I think when I got into this industry, I didn't know any equity long short funds that were, for example, running their book against like a Carhartt model and saying, well, what are our factors? They weren't even using just Fama French, let alone, I think, using Axioma or Barra. Only the quant funds were looking at that stuff. But I think the times have really changed and that that is an area that if you really need to understand what types of risks you're taking, I think some managers will say, well, my book is too concentrated. It doesn't really matter that I have a big value tilt because it's only these two names. Well, those two names, if they score really highly, according to if they have a very high beta or loading to a value factor, if value sells off, those names are likely going to go down. And you probably want to understand that risk because you can also hedge out that risk. There are tools to do that, one of which is a company called Omega Point. They have a dashboard that lets equity long short managers upload their portfolio and see graphically what their factor exposures are. So you don't need an in-house quant. I don't think the solution is, well, we're discretionary long short guys and we're kind of value biased. We're not going to go out there and just hire a quant. And I totally agree with that. I think you don't really need to introduce a quantitative team to understand these things. There are tools you can take off the shelf to understand the risks you're taking. And I think if you're not doing those things, you're at a significant disadvantage to the funds that are. And what Dana showed in his article where he made the case that this should be part of investment process due diligence was that in his research, it looked like about 5% of funds were using these tools. I mean, that to me is astounding. That also suggests that the impact of behavioral bias that we've identified and that we've talked about so far is, A, it seems to be quite large, but B, it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. So that's a problem with the hedge funds. I think the hedge funds need to evolve. I think it also is up to the allocators to promote accountability and ask questions that make sure the managers do a better job of thinking critically about managing capital and utilizing tools to do that. So it's on, I think, both sides to make this happen. But that would be my advice is try to become more process oriented. And you can look to off the shelf products to do that. In the meantime, before that all gets fixed, and perhaps these biases ultimately are removed by managers, you have argued that this, there's actually an opportunity to be able to evaluate manager positioning account for their biases, sort of reweight their book by conviction, so to speak, and harvest the wisdom of the crowds to actually build a portfolio that performs better. You mentioned 13Fs a couple of times. Now, I do know your approach relies on looking at 13F data, but I would imagine 
it's not just wildly scraping every 13F out there and looking at the largest positions for all the reasons you mentioned. So I was hoping you could maybe go into a little detail about your process and maybe translate these concepts we've been talking about into a more tangible strategy or approach. Sure. Happy to. And I think, you know, maybe we can kind of take two steps to doing that. So I kind of start high level and then we can go maybe into the process and I can give you maybe an actual trade example. But going back to high level, and the reason I think it's important to start there is because you want to have a framework to know that the inputs that we're looking at have some durability. So we talked earlier about thinking of a hedge fund as a system, and I think that makes sense. And if you dive a little bit further into that, when I tried to understand, we designed our approach almost 10 years ago, and we saw that it was quite effective and seemed to have some durability. And I wanted to find an explanation for why that was the case other than just thinking of the hedge fund as a system. And the research I ended up coming across was behavioral psychology. Well, honesty compels me to admit I've never actually read Thinking Fast and Slow by uh, Kahneman Tversky. I have the book. It's massive and I haven't read it, but I have read their source papers and I read them years ago. But the first paper I read that I think really stuck out to me was their paper on prospect theory and analysis of decision under risk. And that was published in 1979. And the findings that generally speaking, people are risk averse. And in 95, when they wrote risk attitudes and decision weights, they show that losses hurt roughly twice as much as gains feel good. And what we observe in 13Fs is that if you have that mental model of that thinking in systems of how they should behave, what you see is that 13Fs appear to be this example of prospect theory in action. And so now we have an explanation and input that is likely to have durability. So if we understand what biases we should see, perhaps we can invert that and and say, well, instead of allowing these to be a drag on returns, let's turn them into a fuel. Let's look at these behavioral issues. And by understanding how we're likely to see them in the data, perhaps that can help us build a mechanism to identify conviction through a behavioral lens. And so that's the approach that we take. And again, it's, you know, it's addition by subtraction. We're just reduced behavioral drag to access more skill. And essentially what we're doing is systematizing the discretionary process or attempting to do that to the best of our ability. The approach we've taken to do that is really two steps. First, we need to figure out what funds we are going to select. What funds are we going to look at? Probably doesn't make sense to look at Renaissance. And so it probably makes more sense to look at a manager who has relatively fewer names, doesn't turn the book over that often, is maybe more research oriented. So you have to start with a universe and then you probably want to rank that universe. But the goal when you rank that universe is not to fool yourself into believing that you're going to find the Bill Actons and David Einhorns of the world or any manager that has durable skill. You're probably not going to find the next Warren Buffett. So we take a different approach. Our approach is to think critically about ranking managers in accordance with whose strategy is being rewarded by the current market regime. And we can get into that in a little more detail, but that's the step one. So let's rank managers. And then step two is let's go into their portfolios and let's try to think critically about which names are likely to have the most favorable risk reward asymmetry. And there are a number of ways to do that. But if you think about the phenomenon we've talked about, so for example, a seasonal effort, style bias, and position sizing being suboptimal, you can use those as a tool to inform what type of trading behavior may be indicative of abnormal risk-seeking behavior. It's behavior that it suggests they have abnormally high conviction in a name, 
And that could be your compass for assembling a roster of, of positions for a portfolio. But it's basically a two-step approach. And so it starts with the foundation stock picking skill exists. Then we move to, well, it seems that there are these durable issues that plague the access to stock picking skill. When we think about hedging as a system, there seems to be behavioral science research that supports that these are features of human behavior that have been with us since time immemorial. So they should be durable. So how are we going to use those? Well, we need a mechanism to rank managers. And then we need a mechanism to identify names within their portfolio that suggest they have abnormal conviction. And those will be our longs. And on the short side, we're going to invert that process. I know that's kind of a high level overview, but that's, I could pause there. And if you want to go into more process and maybe to a trading example, I could do that. Yeah, I think that'd be great. I mean, uh, the two pieces that I really picked up upon there from an actual implementation perspective was the regime identification sounds very important and organizing managers within a given regime, market regime. I'd love to get your thoughts there, maybe some ideas about how you do that. And then how you actually think about measuring conviction. Again, not asking you to give away secret sauce necessarily, but maybe a trade idea of how that actually plays out, taking these biases, inverting them to reshuffle the weights of a manager's position to actually identify where they do have conviction. Because I know in past conversations, you've mentioned to me, it might actually be a very small weight in their book, but that might express a very large conviction. So we'd love to sort of either by example or maybe a little explanation of the process. So maybe we can start with the regime idea, because that's something we haven't touched upon yet in this conversation, but I know it's an important part of your process. Sure. So again, I'll start kind of high level and then we'll work our way down like it's a funnel. But I think it always makes sense to invert these problems, right? So it makes sense to think of, well, what shouldn't we do? What probably doesn't make sense? And if you want to rank managers in terms of forecasting their likely near-term or long-term performance, you could look to using sharp ratios or Shortino ratios, but those metrics are non-predictive. If you look at, if you take a group of managers and you rank them according to sharp, and you say, well, okay, how did they do a year forward based on their sharp ranking? You find that it is a very poor forecasting tool. It doesn't allow you to identify managers who are likely to do well in the future. What they're great for is explaining past returns. Like, did they generate a good return that, without much volatility? So it's great to understand the past. It's not a very useful predictive tool. So thinking critically about this, if you want to identify which managers to focus on, you really need to look to predictive analytics. So what approaches could we take that may have some actual forecasting power? And by chance, I'm a big baseball fan. And I think what's really interesting about baseball in the context of investing is that in some ways, they're structurally equivalent. They're very similar. An at-bat in baseball if you think about it, is structurally equivalent to investment idea or making an investment. That generally has a binary outcome. You get on base, you're generating out. It's not the only outcome, but generally that's what happens. With an investment, it's generally binary. The stock will go up over some period of time or down over some period of time. Very rarely is it just flat for an extended period of time. So that's kind of interesting that the game in some ways is similar. And what's interesting about baseball is that there's a massive observable data set of outcomes that you can look at over history and then design tools to make predictions. Well, you can do the same with investing. You can look at 13F data and you can just look at the history of how these managers have interacted with the market and how certain stocks performed. And so back to baseball, in baseball, there's something called the Pythagorean theorem of baseball. And it's this interesting idea that the win percentage of a team can be predicted based on essentially run differential. 
And what you do is you take runs scored and you divide by runs scored plus runs allowed. And there's an exponent involved, not really that important. People could look it up. But the R squared of the projected win percentage versus a team's actual win percentage using that formula is 0.91. So that's really interesting. Essentially, what it says is baseball, if you boil it down into really what the object of the game is, it's score a lot of runs and don't let up many runs. Now, you can say that well, that's really obvious, but the beauty is that it really is that obvious. That's how simple the game is. You want to score a ton of runs. So the next question is, well, what can I do to construct a roster that will allow me to score the most runs? So let's ignore the defensive side of the game and just think about the offensive because I do think there's this important corollary to investing. And there are statisticians that have showed, one of which is a guy named Dan Fox, who wrote an article for the Hardball Times years ago. But what he showed was that batting average correlates to run creation at the team level. I think it was like 0.84 was the correlation. And if you look at something like slugging percentage, well, that correlates to run creation at the team level at about 0.91. And if you go down the host of offensive metrics, you'll find that certain metrics have much more predictive capacity in terms of forecasting how many runs a team is going to score than others. You take that knowledge and you then think about investing. We say, well, okay, so we could actually think about building similar metrics for ranking managers. If you take that approach, what you find is that you have to decide what your look back is going to be. You need to make a lot of decisions, actually. So it's not that simple. You have to come up with a lot of ways you're going to construct the actual formula. But if you take what we see in baseball, having predictive capacity, you should be able to apply it in investing to have a reasonably good forecasting metric for how managers are likely to perform in the near to medium term. Our approach is to lean on what has worked in baseball because it seems fairly simple to investing or fairly similar to investing. And so that's what we've done. And if you do that, you are essentially saying that there's a hot hand approach that exists in investing and that you are identifying managers whose strategies are being rewarded by the current market regime. And that's kind of interesting because you could say, well, okay, this is a momentum strategy following factor tilts, but they're diversified factor tilts. We talked about these managers having bounded exposures to certain factors, and then there's this two and 20 drag on that, but they do move around. Those factor exposures move around. And when you aggregate it, you're looking at a very broad mix of factor exposures and you identify pockets of the market that are performing well. And they tend to attract flows over time. So you could say there's a little bit of a momentum tilt with that approach, but I think that's okay. Because what we find is that when we take that approach, we can design a metric that has 10 times the predictive capacity as a sharp ratio. So that's looking at regime change to make forecasts. And so that's how we think about ranking managers. The second piece going into security selection, I think it's very common to believe that conviction is a good way to identify favorable investments. The difference is how you think about conviction. You could just take the largest names in a manager's book. That's one way to do it. And intuitively, that's quite appealing. What we find is that's not the optimal approach. You can construct superior sub-portfolios from a total portfolio if you think about conviction through a behavioral lens. And that's the approach we take. And if you're going to take that approach, there are essentially a couple things you want to understand that there are these, we can call them universal truths. And then there are idiosyncratic truths, starting with the universal truths that 
we see historically that managers, there's this myopic behavior and seasonal effort is problematic, but seasonal effort tends to happen every year. So you can think critically about that and use that in a model to try to identify episodes of abnormal risk-seeking behavior that are suggestive of very high confidence in a name performing. On the idiosyncratic truth side, hedge funds are just collections of people, and people have personalities that are persistent. And so risk tolerances will vary from fund to fund. And you will find that certain funds avoid names with high short interest. Others will exhibit a very consistent style bias. There are others who will exhibit market cap bias. There are funds who will avoid ever taking liquidity risk, whereas other funds will regularly take liquidity risk. So there are idiosyncrasies within these funds, but the goal is to find consistent idiosyncratic tilts. And if you can do that, you can try to score deviations from those what you'd expect. And those deviations can be suggestive of abnormal conviction. Now, they may also be suggestive of strategy drift. And that's a problem because you would think that batting averages and slugging percentage would decline if a manager starts doing something that's totally outside their wheelhouse. Our approach is imperfect. We know we're going to have a portfolio that is polluted by names that made it in based on our imperfect approach to assembling a portfolio. But on average, if we can identify these episodes of abnormal risk-seeking behavior or suggestive of conviction, we should do pretty well. You end up with a very diversified long portfolio and a very diversified short portfolio. And maybe I can dive into an example to kind of highlight the process in more detail. And there was a company that I followed years ago, almost 10 years ago at this point. It was called Journal Communications. And Journal Communications was, at the time, a $270 million market cap company. Their largest asset was a newspaper in Milwaukee called the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It was a collection of media assets, and it was not a sexy business. But I used to manually sift through 13F data, and I saw a fund that was typically not hardcore value. They didn't really do a lot of hardcore value stuff. You know, Some of the parts story, like Journal Communications, really wasn't up in their wheelhouse or what you'd expect them to be investing in. And beyond that, they had a lot of capital. Their assets under management were over a billion dollars. And here was this tiny little company and they were uh, long the stock. Over a multi-quarter period, they ended up buying, I think they held about 3% of the company at one point. It was only 40 basis points of their portfolio. So my mental model, in, in addition to that, they were buying it into the second half of the calendar year. And it looked, I had a relationship with the manager. I knew they'd had a pretty good year. So to me, that was all peculiar. And I had all this in my head. I had this mental model about how I thought hedge funds behave, how you could actually think about a 13F from a conviction perspective, and that it wasn't necessarily dollars allocated to an idea being the best way to sift through a portfolio to identify conviction. And what was suggestive to me was, okay, so here's an idea. They're buying it in the second half of the year. They're taking massive liquidity risk. It's a tiny position in their portfolio. If this name doesn't triple, whoever's defending this to the investment committee is going to have hell to pay because it's not going to meaningfully move their bonus at the year end if it doesn't go up a lot. And if they're wrong, they're going to crush the stock getting out of it. They ended up accumulating more stock in the company. So as an analyst, I said, well, this is something I should look at. This is something I'm going to allocate research attention to. 
And I read years worth of filings. I read a number of their competitors' filings. And it was amazing to me. It looked like, based on my estimate of intrinsic value, it looked like the stock was worth 70% more than where it was trading. And for us at Northstar, that was rare. I mean, we think that the market can be an inefficient pricing mechanism, but rarely, rarely is it that you come across a name that wildly mispriced. Folks who get on stage at Irisone and some of these conferences and say, well, this stock's worth 4X where it's trading. I'm not sure. I think there's some multiple inflation that usually occurs when that happens. And they're making some assumptions that might not be really that reasonable. So for us, this was a rare find because we were looking for 15% compounders. So we ended up investing in the stock over the next three years. It was acquired by EW Scripps eventually, and it was up 3x. And we had sold out of it well before it made that move. But even before it ended up working for us, in our batting average, you don't expect every stock to meet the intrinsic value estimate you come up with. There's always a little bit of luck. But what was clear to me was that this was a very compelling idea. I had found it using a model I've just described to you. I had high respect for this manager. At the time, I wasn't running this approach in a systematic way. I thought they were a very good manager. I kind of understood how they invested. And that helped me then look at their portfolio and identify something in their book that seemed to represent abnormally high conviction. That led me to the name. So at that point, that's actually when it was a big moment in my career because I realized that there may be potential to build a systematic approach to investing around this type of framework. And so the question was, could you take this belief system and convert it into the math and the algorithms you'd need to rank stocks? So that's in a long example. On the short side, you basically invert the process. We're looking for conviction reversals. If you have a good mechanism to rank conviction, then you should have a good mechanism to rank when people change their mind. And one thing I think that is fair to say about the hedge fund industry is that it attracts people with a high degree of confidence in themselves. And some would say, well, yeah, it just attracts a lot of people who have conceded. But the act of buying and selling a stock and shorting stocks, it's you're saying that if I buy a stock from you, I'm saying that you shouldn't sell it to me, that it's going to go up, that you're making a mistake. And I'm, as long as it's not part of some kind of hedge. And so I think just the inherent in investing is that it requires having confidence in your analysis. And the industry attracts people who are very confident in themselves. And so if you find these examples where someone has expressed confidence repeatedly and extreme confidence repeatedly, and then you see a reversal in their thinking, it is my opinion that that may be the case that that stock will have a weak shareholder base and that the person selling the stock is the educated participant in the transaction, not the person buying it. And if that's the case, you would expect that a basket of those names may underperform over time, especially in periods of elevated downside volatility in the market, because it might be the first name that is sold by the person who bought it from the person who used to have really high conviction in it. And I think that it just speaks to the behavioral issue that eating crow is really difficult. And when you have to admit to yourself you were wrong, there's perhaps signal in that decision. And the idea is to find signal in the noise. And our approach follows this two-step process where we start with identifying managers, seeing whose strategies are being rewarded by the current market regime. And then second, trying to find these examples of abnormal, abnormal conviction. So you have started to touch on it a bit. So let's dive into it. Paint me your picture. What does the future of long-short equity look like? There's going to be a growing dispersion in the performance of equity long-short funds. Because the things I'm talking about 
I think are fairly well known in some circles in this community. And firms understand that they suboptimally access their skill, but they've made oceans of money doing it. And so there's no real incentive for them to evolve. Those people are going to retire. And I think there's going to be a change in the guard where younger folks who have come up in this world who may speak Python and may understand how to conduct data science projects and do big data analytics and look for base rates in the data to think critically about their forecasts for a company. I mean, that's one thing that's been missing, I think, from the industry is that its valuation work is very much forecasting work because the value of a company is the future value of the cash flows and dividends that companies are going to produce. And if you study successful forecasters, you know the first step is always starting with the base rate. That's very difficult to do in investing. And I think 10 years ago, it was much, much more difficult to do. There's been an explosion of data. There's all sorts of alternative data you can use. And that can inform you about the base rate odds for a company to beat earnings or the base rate odds that a company is going to take market share. Credit card data is an example of that. Firms that were the early movers there had an edge and I think outperformed firms that didn't embrace that type of technology. So I think what you're going to see is that as this turnover occurs in the hedge fund universe, the funds that embrace these types of tools and are more equipped to take advantage of the data sets that are available are going to outperform the funds that are being operated in a traditional way. And you're going to see this growing gap in performance. You know, when Dana wrote that article, he pointed out 5% of funds are using these types of tools. It's going to take some time. But as more funds evolve and I think adapt and perhaps hire different types of people, you will see that gap emerge. And back to baseball, but there's an amazing quote at the end of Moneyball, which I think is just a tremendous book and it's a fantastic movie. But John Henry's trying to recruit Billy Bean from the Oakland days. And he says to Billy that any teams that aren't completely rebuilding based on what the Oakland days were able to accomplish by moving to a more a sabermetric approach to assembling their roster, he said, those teams are dinosaurs, that the game's totally changed. And when I think about the hedge fund landscape, I kind of feel like we're at that moment. And there is soon going to be the Oakland days that there are going to be the people in the team that tries to systematize discretionary investing and construct a better mousetrap to reduce behavioral drag, access skill at a more pure level, and produce a return stream that's far better. And funds can stay alive by introducing tools into their processes to make them better. And I think there will be some who try to aggregate it. And that is, I think, really exciting. And it's going to, I think, change the industry. But I do think that a lot of the managers who exist today who invest in a traditional way and are not taking advantage of the tools that are available to them, sadly, John Henry's right. I think they're dinosaurs. So I don't believe everybody will come a quant. I love Warren Buffett. I came into this industry believing so strongly in the merits of value investing, the difference between price and intrinsic value. But I also have learned that systematic approaches to investing are more durable. I think they're more robust. It's more statistical evidence as opposed to uh, hunch and feel investing. And so I think that that will be the successful funds of the future will be more systematic in nature. Well, Casey, thank you for painting that picture. And thank you for joining me today. I know at least for me, someone who has a distinct systematic bias 
what I found so fascinating about getting the chance to talk to you was this idea of exploiting the true discretionary skill of managers in a systematic way. Definitely hit all the buttons for me in terms of an exciting conversation. So thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Corey. It's great talking to you.